So this morning we'll be in two texts, kind of at opposite ends of the Bible to some extent. Um, obviously, for those who have been here, which I think is all of you, um, we're, we're in Philippians chapter 2. But I also want to read a, kind of a strange story from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. I think it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If that's wrong, the kids can correct me. They're good at that stuff. I'll just tell you up front, uh, this this sermon is a little a little different. I don't have like a snappy outline. I tried. I tried really hard. But I do have a snappy title. In fact, I have two snappy titles. Um, one would be Snakes on a Plane. P-L-A-I-N. That's my pop culture reference. There's a movie called Snakes on a Plane, as in an airplane. Or Thinking Caps and Work Boots. So I'm going to introduce this just by reading the two passages. So again, Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9. And Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. And I generally read from the New English translation, um, although sometimes I make some modifications, but um, which none of you have a New English translation. You should get one. Um, talk to me about it sometime. It's a, it's a good, good translation. But. So Numbers 21 When the Canaanite king of Arad, who had lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was approaching along the road to Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they traveled from Mount Hor by the road to the Red Sea. This is where the plane comes in, just for the sake of having a cool title, I assume, that traveling from a mountain to a sea would get you on a plane. They traveled from Mount Hor by the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient along the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread or water, and we detest this worthless worthless food. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people. Many people of Israel died. Then the Lord came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous snake and set it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, so that if a snake had bitten someone, when he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18.
So then, dear, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by holding, by holding on to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. There's a lot in these seven verses. There's a lot that I won't get to. Um, there are a lot of things that I might just touch on lightly. But what I want to do is take a look at two commands. This verse has two imperatives, two commands. The first is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this first command that Paul gives us, it's something that we must practice in the present while recognizing that it has roots in the past as well as roots in the future. It's in this verse where he picks up where he left off in verse 5. Um, and it's part of the larger context of telling us how to live as uh, citizens of heaven, even though we're also citizens of earth, in a way that parallels the message that drew us and made us loyal to King Jesus in a manner worthy of the gospel. It begins with a reference uh, to the, I, I would say, to the health of the Philippian church, just to summarize, and that the health of the Philippian church, this reference Paul gives to their obedience, it focuses on the fact that, it, that they're doing this regardless of Paul's presence. It's not entirely clear whether the reference to Paul's absence or presence refers to what precedes their obedience or to what comes after their working out of their salvation, but either way, the point seems to be that the faithfulness of the Philippians does not depend on Paul's personality, not even on Paul's presence, but solely on God. <clears throat> I really find this a powerful statement that indicates that the church or churches in Philippi didn't stop what they were doing because Paul was absent. But maybe the most obvious question for us in this verse raises, uh, that the verse raises concerns the meaning of working out our salvation. And I'll say this right away. Notice carefully that Paul's not telling them to work for their salvation. He's not saying work to achieve it. But he's saying to work it out. I've explained what it doesn't mean, but I really haven't explained what it does mean. Here's what I think is going on here. It seems clear that in some sense, salvation is something that the Philippians already possess. They have entered into God's kingdom. They have converted. 
Um, and now Paul is commanding them to take what they already possess and to work it out. But I believe the focus here is not just on the fact that they had been saved, but I think the focus is on the future aspect of salvation. You see the New Testament, and especially Paul, deals with this concept of salvation in three tenses, both past, present, and future. You have Paul telling the believers that they have been saved, that they were saved. You have Paul referencing the fact that someday we will be saved. And you have Paul saying things like he does here to work out your salvation. Elsewhere, he he's, you know, talks about continuing in the faith, past, present, and future. There's a sense in which our entrance into Christ's kingdom is our salvation when we start down this path. But once we've done that, we live as citizens in this kingdom, and this too can be called salvation. And obviously, someday when Christ returns and everything is restored, there's a sense in which that is our future salvation. But while we have entered and are working, we don't work the salvation out in isolation. Um, the trouble with English, and I've mentioned this before, is there's no second person plural pronoun. If I say you or you, it's the same word. You don't know what I mean. Depending on where you're from, I can say you or y'all to get that point across. But it's clear in the Greek. This is a plural thing. Paul's not writing to individuals to tell them to work out their individual salvation. He's writing to a collection of believers, a community of believers, that collectively... You all need to work out, but there is a, like a, it's a reflexive pronoun here. It is your own, for yourselves. I find it a lot easier to work out other people's salvation. Do you know what I mean? Like it's way easier and more comfortable to analyze other people's lives and to find what they need to work on. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is, is saying that we as individuals do need to work this out, but we do it as members of a community, and we do it together as part of his kingdom. So when I think of kingdoms, I don't know about you. Maybe this is a common thing. I suspect it is. My mind defaults to medieval times. I picture like a castle where the king lives, um, surrounded by a, an enormous wall inside of which all the people live. There's some coming and going, maybe an occasional invasion, but you could on a normal day safely assume that everyone within those walls belongs to the same kingdom. But the kingdom of King Jesus is not like this though many have and still are trying to make it this way. It's not a kingdom of isolation surrounded by protective walls to keep the citizens in and the enemies out. Even though we've entered his kingdom and are his citizens, we are in many ways still wandering through a strange land, a land in which we don't yet belong in many ways. Because of this, we have opponents, opponents from within 
and without. We still deal with our fallen nature and other fallen people. We wait eagerly for the day when all of this will be resolved and we'll know him as he knows us and where we'll live in a land for which we were created. And while we wait, understand that that future is certain. The reality of the culmination of God's kingdom is a certain promise. It's as certain as our past and our present salvation, maybe even more so. And it's this certain future to which Paul is pointing us in this passage. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is we take a look at our future salvation. We take a look at the fact that we know where we are headed and we know a little bit of what that's going to be like. And the hard work is figuring out how we live today in light of that future reality. Then he goes on to say, we do this in fear and trembling. I mentioned the translation I read from most of the time and that I alter it occasionally. Um, I did here because my the New English translation reads awe and reverence, which is a fine translation, but I think maybe tones down a little bit what's going on here. Awe and reverence... We don't know what awe is often. You know, it's a sunset or a thunderstorm or something like that. Um, reverence sort of means respect. And so I, I think there's more to that. I like the translation here, fear and trembling. When you look throughout the Bible, fear and trembling is often the response of witnesses to mighty acts of God. You see, because I've always wondered, I sort of get the working out of your salvation, but I didn't get the fear and trembling part. The working out of the salvation sort of made sense to me, but why should I be fearful or terrified or scared? But the more I looked at this phrase used throughout the Bible, the more it made sense. Think of the disciples' response when Jesus calmed the storm. Do you remember this story? They're not filled with joy. They're not comforted by the power of Jesus to calm the storm. There's a lot going on in this story. In the Old Testament, the power to control like wind and waters uniquely belong to God. So when Jesus calms the storm, they're filled with terror. Or awe. It's similar to when Jesus walks on water. The Bible tells us that the people who witnessed this were terrified. But it's not the kind of terror or fear that paralyzes us or causes us to run away. It's the kind of fear and terror that ultimately gives us confidence and hope. You see, when humans witness the power of God, they realize that what they were witnessing had but one explanation. It was the very power of God. We see this in the miraculous. We see this in the signs and wonders. We see this in powerful acts of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, particularly through the ministry of Jesus, 
right? The casting out of demons, the, the giving sight to the blind, the raising from the dead. And we might imagine that if we were on the ground there and had witnessed those things, that our response would be this sort of fear and terror and awe, but not the kind that pushes us away or causes us to stop in our tracks, but the kind that causes us to pursue in confidence. And so I would ask you this question, is the salvation of even one soul any less powerful? Paul is here making at least a couple of cosmically grand statements. He's saying that in the previous passage that we've talked about, because God is going to exalt us like he did Jesus through his obedience that resulted in his death, he will be exalted. So we have this promise that God is going to exalt us. We also have this promise that he's the one giving us both the desire and the ability to work out this salvation, to live out this gospel, our proper response is to get busy with the work. You see, he's given us the desire, he's given us the ability, and he's ensured our future. So the proper response is to get busy with the work. But this is a powerful act of God. And should be approached with fear and trembling as if we had just witnessed a miracle like the calming of the storm or Jesus walking on the water. Because I think we have. Each one of you who are walking with Christ is a walking miracle. A walking and talking sign and wonder pointing not only to the grace and to the love of God, but also to his power. I also want to mention here that we need to avoid the error of, of creating a category of good works that we call spiritual. Paul says that this is done for God's good purpose, that he gives us the desire and the ability, this mighty act of God by which we work out our salvation but that it's for his good purpose. You know, some types of obedience seem to be more obviously for God's good purpose. Um, some acts of obedience seem more obviously spiritual than others. But I would say this, that if you're a citizen of his kingdom, then all that you do out of faithfulness to him is in that realm of things done for God's good purpose. It's all kingdom work, I believe. Sometimes we celebrate special religious occasions, right? Like Christmas and Easter. And we feel like uh, these events are like really the stuff of the kingdom. And everything else maybe is more mundane, more ordinary. So we have these special occasions. But other times we're just planting. We're just watering we're just weeding. Maybe sometimes we're reaping. Sometimes we just swing hammers and pound nails in our work clothes. We play with our kids and have coffee with friends. But I would say to you that all of these are works 
for his glory if we're doing them as citizens of his kingdom. Take a look at the second command. I'm going to try to put the two together. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm going to use that story from Numbers to try to do so. The second command is full of Old Testament references, which we'll, we'll get to. But I love what Paul's doing here. I think he's doing the same thing that he did in uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. He takes something incredibly theologically rich and profound. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I, I'm guessing there are hundreds not thousands, at least hundreds of books written just about that passage. When you get into articles written on it, I'm sure it would number in the thousands. The incarnation and the emptying of Christ, like what does that mean? That's such a theologically rich thing to think about. It's profound and hard to wrap your brain around. But then he follows, follows it. Actually, in that passage, he precedes it with this very mundane thing. This is how you get along with other people. Right? I mean, what a mundane, what an ordinary thing. Just this is how we get along. And he launches into this theologically deep hymn about Jesus. He does the same thing here, just in a different order. He gives us this grand theological statement uh, about which endless debates have gone on for almost 2,000 years. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? What does it mean that God has given us the desire and the power and the ability? But he follows it up with something seemingly mundane and what to many of us would be way less important right, than trying to figure out the relationship of faith to works and salvation. He says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. It seems incredibly ordinary and mundane compared to the richness of the previous verses. You know, I, I need this. I'm sure my wife thinks I need this specific passage. But I need to be reminded, right, that these things that I like to try to wrap my brain around, these things that I spend hours and hours reading about and listening about, um, I don't do a lot of debating because no one in my family is interested. But I need this reminder that if this doesn't have some sort of significant practical aspect to it, then I'm missing something. I love the grand theological statements. I love the mysteries that I can't wrap my brain around. I love reading the Bible and reading about the Bible. I love it when I have to put my thinking cap on. But I could sit with a book, a cup of coffee, and my thinking cap for a really long time if I didn't have Paul's corrective for this. Paul and the other authors of Scripture, they like... They like us to put on the thinking cap. It's not a bad thing, but they also like us to put on our work boots to get to the task, to get the job done. The thinking cap doesn't come off, but the work boots must be put on. 
That's what's going on so beautifully in these passages. Paul gives us something to think about, something uh, that we could spend countless days trying to wrap our minds around, and, and stuff that's so full of mystery that we'll never quite hang on to it. But then he quickly moves us on to the hard work, to the task. He takes this command to work out our salvation, of which we could spend years probing its depths and or debating precisely what it might mean, and he gives it hands and feet. He does this by commanding the Philippians to do everything without grumbling or complaining. The profound is again followed by the mundane, except in Paul's vision of the church, unity is not mundane. It's not even secondary. It's essential. And at least in this gathering, grumbling and complaining was compromising this unity. You know, I think of all the sins that Paul could have addressed. Maybe you have a list of sins that you think are causing the church to be less than what it could be. Because the church is less than what it could be. And it's not easy or it's not hard to sit around and generate a list of things that need to happen. But where would grumbling and complaining fall on your list? Think of what the church needs today to be what it should be in our world. Again, not hard. Pretty easy to form an opinion about that, I think. Maybe you have a list, a list of what the church needs to do to be what it should be in our world. Where does unity fall on that list? My guess is that if you don't see unity as a priority on the latter list, then grumbling and complaining will be pretty far down the former list. For Paul's view of the church, both would be at or very near the top. So how do we connect this working out of our salvation with grumbling and complaining? I think the key to understanding this is in the connection of these commands to the Old Testament. And this is where Numbers 21 becomes important. One aspect of its importance I found fairly directly. It's sort of obvious once you read both texts. But there's a second aspect of the importance that I didn't expect to find. You see, Numbers 21 finds the Israelites wandering part of their 40 years of the time in the wilderness. Do you remember why they were wandering? Grumbling and complaining. They witnessed the power of God. They had the fear and trembling experiences over and over again. They experienced his deliverance in a very unique and obviously powerful way. They were literally slaves and were literally liberated. But they don't like the food. They don't like having to exercise their faith in following the Lord. So they complain, all of them. In 21, they're complaining against Moses and God. But if you read all of Numbers, you'll find Moses himself complaining to God. You'll find Miriam and Aaron complaining. Everyone's complaining. In Numbers 21, the Israelites experienced this miraculous deliverance 
and, and victory over an enemy as a response to their prayers. I mean, this is what we want, right? Like, Lord, if you would just answer this prayer so that I could see you move with power in my life or in the life of someone I love, how much easier would it be for me to trust you? He does this for them. And I have to say their response is probably what mine would be. It's like, good, it's cool, like, thank you. But this food really stinks. And did you just bring us out here to die? Take us back to Egypt. The reason is that generally they don't want to trust God. Trusting is hard. They prefer the certainty of their slavery over the unknown future of their freedom. I've seen this before. Before Amber and I moved to Alaska, I worked for eight years at the Youth Rehabilitation and Treatment Center in Kearney, Nebraska. Two years as a security staff and six years as a teacher. And the quickest way to explain this place for you is imagine a juvenile detention center for boys, teenage boys. That's the image. Um, during my time there, I knew many young men who would work so hard to earn their release. You see, there were no sentences. You stayed until you were ready to go home or until you were 18. What was it, 19? I think it's 18, which if you got there when you were 15 is a really long time. But you had to work hard. You had to, you know, help others and go through counseling and demonstrate over and over that the issues that brought you there were at least becoming resolved. And we would have these meetings where, where the youth would come before a whole bunch of us adults, usually pretty nervous, and have to explain to us why they felt they were ready to leave. And when they got an affirmative answer, um, remember the first few times I experienced it, like it was like a moving thing, right? Something that not too many of us get to experience unless you've ever worked a job like that. To see the, the joy and the sense of accomplishment, finally when someone's released. But sometimes, seem like many times, I don't know what the statistics are, they would end back up, they would end back with us. They'd end up back with us in a few months. There are a lot of reasons for this. Um, but you know what one of them was? They preferred the certainty of their incarceration. When they were with us, they didn't have to wonder where their next meal was going to come from. They didn't wonder if mom or dad or grandma had enough money for groceries. They didn't wonder if anyone was going to be there to take them to school. They didn't wonder who was going to take care of them when they were sick. There was a certain kind of certainty about being incarcerated. What was the saying? Three hots and a cot, right? They say that about prisons and stuff. Three hot meals and a place to sleep. There are a lot of people, even in America, that don't have that. So there's a sense of certainty 
about being incarcerated and definitely a sense of uncertainty about having freedom. But the Israelites are not teenage boys from broken homes. They're God's people. And not only do they have a history of experiencing God's power in very obvious ways, but they had seen and experienced it themselves. But they don't trust. And I don't think it's a question of power. Because to me, it begs the question, why? Why don't they trust? Why do they struggle to trust? I don't think they're lacking in belief in God's ability, in his power. I think they doubt his wisdom and maybe even his goodness. And I suspect we struggle with the same. You see, Israel had not yet entered the promised land, though it was a certain reality. But they had been rescued. They had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. So it's during this wilderness wandering that they should be working out what it means to live in light of the certain promise of coming into the land and possessing it. But wandering is hard. There are obstacles and there are opponents and there is uncertainty. God dwells with them in this temporary portable structure, right? The tabernacle, rather than in a glorious temple. You know, some churches that don't have a building struggle with this. Like they're not a real church until they have a roof and maybe a mortgage. I think there's also a willful forgetfulness. By this, I mean that we see in Israel and in ourselves an approach to God that resembles this attitude of what have you done for me lately? We tend not to trust his person, but his actions and his interventions. This is really a subtle form of idolatry. We worship the gifts and not the giver. When we do this, what matters is the latest and greatest display. I wonder if the same thing happened to the Israelites. We'd like to think if we'd seen that glorious display of God's power like they did, that that would be enough for us. But if we've trusted in the display, if we've trusted in the outcome, rather than in the person, the character of God, who does this only because he's gracious and merciful, then we start worshiping the gift and not the giver. God shows himself in ways just as powerful in the wilderness as he does in the promised land, but there's still this tension of living during the already and the not yet. And we too are tempted into wondering what God has done for us lately. While I was writing this, um, writing this sermon, I was listening to a podcast called Seminary Dropout. And the host was interviewing Lee Strobel. If any of you have heard of him, he's a Christian apologist. He wrote books like The Case for Christ. And he's got a book out called The Case for Miracles. And they were talking um, about the sort of scientific evidence for miracles Um, on some studies that have been done, and and it was very interesting and and quite a powerful thing to listen to. 
But toward the end of the interview, they address this idea, what about when miracles don't happen? Because you can't provide evidence for the fact that they do happen without discussing why sometimes they don't happen. And in this context, of, this con- of the context of that conversation, they began to address the fact that conversion itself is a miracle. I would add to that like sanctification, the ongoing work of God in our lives is a miracle. It's a sign and a wonder. This is powerful. You know, I don't have a miracle or a sign or a wonder to tell you about. Um, I've never had some sort of acute physical problem that was healed in some kind of immediate and extraordinary way. I've never gone through an event that someone might say, and he lived to tell about it. In fact, I try to avoid those situations if I can. I've heard the stories of others, but tend to feel inferior that I have nothing to contribute to that conversation. But this is really not true at all. Though I've never seen plagues and a sea parting, I've been set free. Though I've never survived a shipwreck or a snake bite like Paul did, I've been rescued and healed. And so have you. How differently would you treat one another if one or both of you had just been healed miraculously? Would I complain or grumble against you if just last week you'd been delivered from some illness or an addiction or maybe even death itself? If yesterday you were blind and we prayed for you and now today you can see, would I grumble or complain against you or the God who delivered you? I watched the first episode only of the Netflix series. I think it's called Black Mirror. I don't have Netflix anymore, uh, so I couldn't check it out. But it portrayed a society, a modern-day society, and it's not too far-fetched for this sort of Facebook-like entity had taken over. As you walked into a cafe or walked down the street, immediately on your phone, everyone's faces were recognized, and you would, there would be ratings like a 3.9, a 4.2, a 2.8. And everything about your life depended on your Facebook rating, okay? Your rating means everything. It limits where you can live. I think that was the point of this episode. This woman wanted to rent this really nice place, but her rating was like a couple of tenths too low. It limits what kind of rate you get on a rental car, how fast you get through airport security, and the kinds of jobs for which you can apply. And the only way to improve your rating is to get people with higher ratings to like you on the app. Not to really like you, but that's how it goes. But I wonder what it would be like if every time we passed someone, a follower of Jesus, someone in this church, if every time we pass by, our phone would pop up a video of the power of God in their life? life. What if we could see their rescue, their deliverance, as well as their destiny? What if I could see where you came from 
where you are headed and what God's doing in your life right now. Would I complain or grumble against you or against God who is doing this powerful work in you? I hope not. I don't think so. In fact, I suspect I would respond with a healthy terror at the display of power in your life as much as I would if I witnessed your physical blindness turn into sight. You see, grumbling and complaining divides us, but it also attracts poisonous snakes. I hate snakes. The solution then is to look to Jesus lifted up for us. This looking to Jesus lifted up for us levels us. Poor, rich, male, female, conservative, liberal, those who like labels and those who don't. We're leveled by the cross. The cross promises that our destinies are the same and that we are, each one of us, walking miracles. The future God has promised is true and certain. The power of God is displayed and it's on display in each of our lives. We have security in our future and the power of God in the present. And because of that, let us work out the reality of our future with the power, with the power that's available to us right now. Let's put on our work boots without taking off our thinking caps as we live out this reality in an incredible in a powerful way. It's a unity that brings light to the darkness around us. I won't even hardly touch on the rest of the passage, but what Paul is saying when he's talking about us being pure and blameless, you know, lights shining in our, in our generation or in our society, it's all about attraction. He's saying if we're pure and blameless, if we shine as lights, then we'll be sort of a beacon or a guide for those who are in the darkness, much as Israel was intended to be a light to the nations. So would you pray with me to that end? Uh, Father, Lord, I know that I, I, I just sometimes just grossly ignore um, your power in my life and the, the, your power in the lives of others, um, feeling like, like I need some kind of display that I haven't seen before. Lord, help us not to make idols out of those experiences. Give us times throughout the day, throughout the week, where we can just pause and reflect on what you've done in our lives and what you're doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters, that we would see your hand and your work in that context just as powerful, powerfully as, as the Israelites saw it in um, the parting of the sea, all the, the different ways that they experienced um, and I pray that the recognition, the observation of that kind of power would move us to a fear 
and a trembling and a terror, but not one that pushes us away, but one that draws us closer and closer and closer. Lord, give us uh, wisdom as we try to figure out, in light of our future certainty and our past entrance into your kingdom, Lord, what it means to wander well, to be faithful to you, to, to, to live in a way that reflects and parallels the gospel that saved us, the gospel that keeps us going, Lord, in a society that, uh, that needs it as much as we ever did. Lord, give us insight and wisdom into how to do that, and not just as individuals, but as a community. We thank you in advance for what you're doing in our lives, for what you will do in our lives. Um, we're humbled by the fact that it's, it's your power that's giving us uh, even the desire and especially the ability to get the work done. And it's only through Jesus, only because of what he's done on our behalf and in our place and for our benefit that we could even ask these things. Amen.